Oh, Jeff is great. He has the biggest brain on the internet. Welcome to the Jeff Effect. Hello, everyone. This is Nigel, engineer here at the Jeff Effect. Today is August 6th in the bloody crazy year of 2020, and Jeff had a conversation with Patrick Campbell, CEO of ProfitWell. They have the inside data scoop on B2B, B2C, and D2C subscription and recurring revenue companies all over the world. You know, I was listening to this thing live, and these two guys bounce topics and insights back and forth for an hour. It covers a wide range of material, but, but you'll get the gist, and perhaps be able to at least ask the right questions going forward. So let's jump right in, shall we? <clears throat> all right, first of all, how did I find you? I mean, I was... I follow, I've been around technology a long time. I got people in the B2B space. I do, I do messaging communications and some economic consulting for my customers and some merger and acquisition cool. consulting for people. And I do all this stuff and uh, you know, the pricing models are always coming up. And then when somebody in my circle asked the question online, you know, rhetorically, they said, Hey, who's the best person the best people to talk to about uh, you know setting up uh, subscription-based recurring pricing models, and your cool. name was one of three that was mentioned in a Twitter, in a tweet. Cool. And so it, it got my attention. Uh, pricing models are all based upon economics. Economics is not economics is not about money. Economics is about human behavior. So that's right. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's the uh, you know it, it's and so I'm always interested in that. So I started looking at your feed, and so I'm going to start by saying this: you keep signing off in your content by talking about how you're going into your analysis igloo or you're going into your hovel <laughs> or whatever. All right. All right. But I got to tell you this, 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 this is serious. I've been, I've been looking over your content, your website, your marketing is you got, you got your crap together. And uh, yeah. so, so first of all, that's, it's hard to get sometimes an analytics person to get their messaging and, and their communications straight. So the first prop I want to give you, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but props to you. You're doing Thanks, a man. really good. You're doing a really good job. You got you got your stuff together, dude. And and you're staying on target. You're on message. You're on brand, and it's valuable. And and I've actually already gleaned a few little th interesting things that I'm going to file away in my brain. So, uh, when people are listening to this, I'm I, you know, I want to make sure we recommend that they follow your Twitter feed so they can get the latest stuff. Thank you. Yeah, we put. Um, I think you've seen this probably in, in your career as well. Is like education is normally the best marketing. Um, yeah. And that's, that's really what we've kind of leaned into and, and it gets kind of professorial at times, but that's like, people are interested in that because you, you make them smarter and then they, you know, in turn either want to work with you or they're going to suggest you or these types of things. And that's why like, you know, basically, and this is, I don't know if this is a good thing, but um, you know, even though I'm running a company, I take like every podcasting opportunity, I, I take it just because I think it, every little bit helps. Um, and I stack them and make sure that, you know, my whole day is basically interviews today, which is good. But it's like, that's, it's all about that evangelism and that education um, and making people better. And then, you know, if you can sell the software to help them in more, then that's even better. Well, you know, it's true, uh, but it, it's, but it's also people don't understand, uh, especially new, new people, people who want to get into marketing or content marketing. Um, you are obviously have a strong commitment to it. You obviously mm, have yeah. made a strong investment in it. And I, I love how you do these things. You, yeah, you're, in fact, even your style. I may, forgive me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rip the hell off. I'm gonna rip you <laughs> off because, do it. Uh, yeah, Go. because you know, you, you do, you do these uh, two-minute Twitter videos, right? And and then and, and and you let people consume in the way they want to consume. You can just watch the two-minute video, or no. you can open up the thread and blast down and get more. Or you can then go to your website and download whatever your eBooks and stuff like that. So in other words, I can go as far down the rabbit hole as I want to go, but you're never forcing me to go any further than I want to go. And so that, that's, that's really good for getting your message out to a, a great number of people. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. good. Rip it away. I'm happy to also, I'm going to do some stuff too. And like how, how you make it quicker, you know, cause sometimes like, you know, doing a video could take forever. And so I have a whole setup that just makes it and just making it easy. Like I got the DSLR all set up here and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. however I can help, just let me know. All right. Well, thanks. Well, first of all, let's talk about profit. Well, and uh, you know, you're in the business of helping people make better pricing and price modeling decisions. Am I getting that right? You, you, you get a plug in. 
and then they start getting real data analytics back on their customers, and then you share information from your whole pool. Tell us, tell me a little bit about how that works. Yeah, it's actually, it, it's more complicated, and that's one of the big problems we're trying to figure out in the next six months is like our product marketing. Um, and the reason is, is because uh, the way we're describing ourselves is, you know, we're revenue operations tools. Uh, revenue operations or revenue automation is, is kind of what we've been playing with um, to kind of get into that world that's there. So we have a core product called Profile Metrics that is free subscription financial metrics. So you plug it into your billing system, um, Stripe, Zora, Braintree, any, any one you're using. Um, basically, we give you access to free metrics. And these aren't like bad because they're free. It's like they're full featured. We were going to charge for this product, but it made a lot more sense for us to do the freemium play. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening there is um, we now have about 20% of the entire subscription market using that product. And what we do is we, we don't look at anyone's individual data, but we study that data in aggregate. And then those findings feed a couple of different products that we have that um, help reduce churn or help optimize pricing. Um, the reason we have such a strong pricing contingent in our business is because that was our first product, was the pricing product, and then we came out with metrics, then our churn reduction product, and then we have a revenue recognition product for all the, the fun accountants out there as well. Great. Okay. And and so and and you rightly identified it. And it's it's um, I, I downloaded one of your ebooks and I, I and I went through it, and you you focus, I, I think I called you call them the three levers of revenue growth, right? Yeah. And and uh, was customer acquisition, which, and, and, and this is the thing, and this, this got my brain and this is why you got this, this, this one part is really why you got my attention is because everybody I talk to focuses on customer acquisition. Like that's yep. the only thing cost of customer acquisition. I'm getting customers. I'm getting customers. I'm getting customers, right? How much is it costing me to get a customer? And I said, okay, that's great. You know, that's great. Uh, but then you said, okay, there's three though. There's customer acquisition. Yeah. There's customer retention, and then there's proper monetization, and and that's yep. related to pricing, and 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 uh, you and in your in your content you said that there's three ways to grow revenue. You know, it's not just acquisition. You got to look at all three of these things. So so j just kind of put that in context of your philosophy. Totally. Yeah. So I think the big thing is is you have to realize we've been on a pretty big journey the past twenty years, let's say. Um, Birth of the cloud, birth of DevOps tools, birth of, you know, no code, you know, the past couple of years, these types of things has made it so that the biggest barrier to entry used to be building the thing and hosting the thing, right? Um, you know, maybe not quite 20 years ago, but definitely 20 years ago, but even before then, like you had server rooms and infrastructure and, you know, IT managers and these types of things. Please hold for a very important message. Now, over the past 20 years, we've now made it that anyone in their, you know, their brother or their mother, whomever, can start a business by the end of the day, spin up a website, maybe even spin up a server if they're doing a technical product, and start driving traffic, right? So competition is out of control. Competition's up probably about 6x in the past seven years, um, let alone, you know, probably 20, 30x over the past 20 um, and it's not necessarily that you're competing against every single person. It's just that there's so many other competitors out there that are competing for attention, right? You talking to me? You talking to me? Mm -hmm. Now, the beautiful thing that's happened over the past 20 years is that we've gotten brand new marketing channels like almost every single quarter between 2002 and 2015. So I don't know if you remember Penny, Penny Google AdWords, you know, Google AdWords for a penny a click. We're marketing, uh, Google Display Network, Yahoo Display Network, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, like all these different things. And then Snapchat was the last one in 2015. And with the exception of TikTok, which is still TBD, we haven't had a major marketing channel open up in the past five years. Um, we've had little products here and there. And so what's happened is if you were building a company from 2000 to 2020 or somewhere in there, it was amazing. Costs were going down to ship products and then acquisition was easy. You know, it's never easy, but it's, it's much easier. Since 2012, though, when we started basically reaching a point where everyone was shipping code relatively quickly, some faster than the others, but it wasn't like there was this huge barrier anymore. And we were losing out on these like greenfield channels that marketers were basically taking advantage of. We haven't changed how we buy or how we sell it, I should say. And what I mean by that is um, if we look at the data and we did this study on about 1200 companies and these are all in the subscription space, but they ranged in sizes. 
we categorized all their expenses and, and basically the median proportion that went to marketing activities um, or acquisition was 57%. So we spend, you know, at a median level, we spend most of our time and money acquiring customers, which is fine. And I'm not against that. I think you need to change how you do it. But what we're finding is that those companies who are really successful now, if they can't or aren't going to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to kind of buy the market, because that's now how much it costs to buy a substantial market, the only way that they're growing is by acquiring customers, which kind of gets them to the show. And then the things that actually help them with the hyper growth are monetization and retention, making sure that they're monetizing those users and those users, their, their ACV or their ARPU, depending on how you're measuring it, the revenue per customer is growing over time. And also making sure those users stick around, um, which I think is a really, really big thing that not enough people are focusing on and they're putting all this money into the top of the funnel. And then once they get these customers, they're leaving because their retention's terrible. So. Yeah, my philosophy is is not acquisitions bad, not you're not going to spend 57% of your budget and things like that on acquiring customers through sales and marketing, but that you have to kind of rethink where your growth is going to come from. Because we right now have a very large misunderstanding of where growth comes from because we're using the old school mindset that we once had. 100% agree. I, and and the uh, I, I, I've framed similar arguments for, for my customers in different ways is that uh, in that... Uh, we learned, uh, people learned all the wrong lessons. And speaking about, you know, the hosting space, I've got most, most of my history in technology is in the hosting space, okay? Mm. Um, at data center and hosting. And, uh, you know, in the, I call them the Wild West days. Um, it was, you, if you could get a server stood up and you could get a website running, you customers would arrive at your door. Yeah, you can put a login screen on a database. That's that's the little joke I make, but it's totally true. Yeah, and it, it was it was crazy, and 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 they a lot of people. Some of them are still my friends to this day, and they still don't. I still haven't broken through because they spent 15 years where it was easy, right? Where you know just just hey, got a new offer, and 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 that's created. Uh, a, and this is kind of you know off off of where I was tending and going, but it's created a, uh, an impatience in one way, right, in their brain where they'll, they'll, they'll try a new Facebook campaign or they'll try a new um, Google ad campaign or they'll try some sort of a new campaign. And if they're, and they're trying to drop people in the top of the funnel. And if it's not working in 24 or 48 hours, you know, they're ready to give up. Uh, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's because their brain taught them, you know, the, 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 the 15 years taught them all the wrong business lessons that te mm. technology, technology was in a, uh, a, a gold rush bubble, right? Where you had, where, and remember in the early days of the gold rush, you could literally run out to the gold fields with a, with a bucket and a pan and scoop it in the soil, swish it around and gold nuggets would pop up. But after about 15 years of that, all the easy gold was, was gone and you had to start digging harder and farther and faster. And, and, but the, the lessons, you know, the old lessons of the easiness was, was, was polluted their brains. And I think we're still in a, in a place where people's brains are, are frozen in that immediacy. What about tweaking this? How about trace, uh, changing your pricing model? What about making sure your offer is properly aligned with the people you're talking to? Those things, there, there's no patience for that yet, but I think there has to be. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? Yeah. So really it kind of comes down to, I think it's just kind of natural, right? That that would happen. I feel because if you have that old school mindset, you're basically, um, yeah, you're basically sitting, sitting in a world where you used to be able to get those quick fixes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and your, your boss could come to you and say, Hey, I need this much revenue. And you would say, great, give me this much spend. And it was actually super predictable. Right. But now, mm -hmm. And this is where there's also this kind of whole movement of, you know, kind of, I, I don't know how to call it, but like anti hyper growth, right? Because there's some spaces that I don't think you can get the crazy expectations that existed in 20, 20, 2006, let's say, like in terms of the growth, because the growth has to compound, right? Um, and that's because of all the noise. And that's because some of these markets, they don't develop quickly with just like turning ads on. So yeah, I think it's, there's, there's a, I, I love to be, I love to focus on leverage and momentum. Where am I going to get the most leverage in terms of our goals? So right now our content, our content's not cheap. Like we do a lot in terms of con content. We think of ourselves more as a media company from a marketing perspective than anything. And that's where we invest. It's not cheap, but it gets a huge payoff. The payoff's not like immediate, but that payoff really kind of incepts people 
um, and, and builds our brand. And so I think that that's, there's leverage and then momentum. Like what are the little things that are going to add up? And I think not enough people take time to let things bake essentially. I agree. All right. So uh, you also talk about in, uh, three aspects of uh, uh, positioning, packaging, and pricing. And this is something more, more, more specifically related to subscription and recurring revenue models. So talk a little bit about what your thoughts are with those three aspects. Yeah, I think um, when I think of those, those three, it's like pricing and monetization, maybe the soapbox a little bit more here. It's, it's, it's more than just the number. And I think a lot of people focus on like, Hey, like what should our price be? And, and that's, and, and if you're kind of in a commodity world, like that is the only question, right? It doesn't matter. Like, what you know, value prop you put on top of it. It doesn't matter what features you offer. Like those things will probably contribute, but if you're selling gold, it's just like, what's the price, right? When we're selling products that the value is, I don't wanna say nebulous, but it's more, it's, it's, it's less concrete. Um, all of a sudden, like all of these different things influence value. And what I like to say is, is that in your business, if you really think about your monetization, it is the reflection of the value that you're creating in the world. Your, your monetization is actually the exchange rate on the value you've created because you've created this value and we don't trade goats for wheat anymore. We were saying it's worth this much, right? Mm -hmm. And when you start to conceptualize it that way, what ends up happening is, is that everything in your business is used to either drive someone to a point of conversion and to justify the price or the product that you're offering them. So if you adjust your positioning, we've seen this time and time again. Um, you know, we, we tested, we do a lot of like market tests for our content we found that changing the value proposition, just the value proposition, so you describe the product the same way, but just changing the value props um, or the positioning basically will will add plus or minus, you know, 20% in B2B and plus or minus 15%, um, you know, in terms of the medians in, in you know, consumer-based businesses. Um, changing packaging for, you know, a product, either moving a feature in certain places or taking out features and making them add-ons can have substantial effects on your business. And then obviously the price, right? You know, your price signals your worth in a lot of places. And so sometimes you're, you're trying to sell a premium product, but you look like a discount brand or vice versa. Um, and that really affects things. And so I think that with me, with pricing, packaging and, and, and positioning, it's, it's more of a call to arms of there are a lot of other levers here. And all of those levers are there to influence your revenue per customer, your ARPU, ACV, however you're measuring it. But ultimately there's, there's a lot of things that you can pull under the monetization lever that, that will help grow the business. You know, you talked about in, in, you know, several places, you talk about, about these things and about experimenting and testing and, you, and, and starting, I think it starts with starting to get real metrics and data on, 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 on your, your financial health and your business, which is what you're in the business of. And then you have to, you, you say it, you, you still have to make the big decisions, right? You still have to make the big, hard decisions, but there's testing and stuff involved. How do you do that type of uh, testing in those aspects, positioning, packaging, and pricing without harming your business or disrupting your credibility? Yeah. So the big secret is, is that, um, I don't know, this is a little controversial, but I think that AB testing for most people gives us a false sense of security, um, multivariate testing as well. And it's not because those things aren't good. Um, those things are amazing. Um, the problem is, is that most of us either don't know really how to do that properly. Um, and, you know, we've had tools who have tried to convince us that, you know, we can just really simply do, you know, AB and, and get conclusions. But I don't know if that's entirely true, depending on the tool. But two, if you're selling to a business like B2B, you probably don't have the traffic to do truly um, even an AB test, let alone, you know, multivariate test, what you would need to do if you're looking at positioning, packaging, et cetera, right? Now there are exceptions, obviously like Amazon, they can do a consumer price test at 30 seconds. They have that traffic. Um, and a lot of SMB products, you get enough traffic. So it's, it's not something where I'm saying, oh, AB testing is, is, is wrong. I'm saying that most of us think we're doing it and we're really not, or we think that it's our savior and we're really not, or we claim we're doing it and we're really not. Or, or, so we, think we, have, or we think we have good data and in reality are Yeah, data that's probably the worst. Yeah, I've had a lot of these conversations because I'm kind of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, classically trained in economics and statistics. And so it's like one of those things where, you know, whenever you're in a room and someone's like, well, what's, you know, what's the sample size? 
which isn't the right question. It's really like, you know, what's the variance, what's the margin of error, what's these types of things, right? So long story short, to answer your question more directly, what I recommend doing is, one, starting small with your pricing. I think a lot of people go, okay, we're gonna like overhaul our pricing and let's do a six to nine month project where by the time the six to nine month project's done, you don't wanna do anything because now it feels too risky and all the data is like, just doesn't make sense anymore, or most of the data, I should say. So again, to kind of like pull this back a little bit, I think the big thing to kind of think through is doing research. And a lot of people, they shy away from research because they think that, you know, this testing and this time horizons and these types of things will actually help them. But in reality, these tools have been in front of us for a long time. Um, we just don't like them because a lot of us are bad at using them. And what I mean by that is like surveys. Um, surveys are a phenomenal statistical tool when you know how to properly ask questions and you know how to clean the data and ultimately you know how to understand the limits of the data um, and then make decisions based on that. And so what we have found is that if you start small, like you start with like, hey, let's just figure out if this feature should be an add-on or it should be included in this tier. That's a small question. Or hey, let's figure out like, what's the willingness to pay right now for our current product amongst our customer base? That's a small question. Um, you can get some really, really good data by doing the research and then you have to you know, earn your paycheck. And this is why pricing and monetization is both an art and a science. I think that we just think it's a little more of an art than it really is. But once you get the science, once you get the data, and then you look at what you're trying to optimize for, it is, it's, it's relatively easy to make some decisions. It's going to be hard to make other decisions, but then you put it in the market and you test it. Um, and if you do that right, um, ultimately you gain your confidence. And if you communicate to your customers correctly, um, you can also gain your conf confidence and, and you know, move things forward. Okay. Now, so you have, a, you, have a, you have a lot of specific experience and I've got something uh, that, that it's in the back. You, you said something and it triggered the back of my brain. We all have those triggers, right? And, yeah. uh, and, and that trigger was this, you're talking about surveys and uh, I've done, you know, heck in my career, I've done, you know, I, I, I've lost track of how many surveys I've done and I've developed a philosophy that I've, I've carried through to, you know, to my economics work as well. It's this, never trust what people say and implicitly trust what people do. So, sure. you know, so uh, how do you, I mean, and I, I understand that, you know, sometimes surveys are all you got, but how do you, totally. how do you get, how do you get, past, you know, that's, the, now that's a, I'm going to be willing to admit that's a bias in my brain right now. Totally. I've seen, I've seen so many surveys just that the real data and real behavior did not match the survey data even a little bit. How do you get by that? Totally. So what, what we typically see with surveys and this, so th there's a couple things, a couple of, couple of prefaces. So one, um, you're, you're never, you're not trying to find the perfect answer. And I think that that's a big misconception with any research is you're trying to find like the truth, which is, it's what you're trying to do, but you're never going to get there. Right. Because there's always limits, right? Like maybe your sample size isn't big enough. Maybe the environment isn't great. All these other things, right? What you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize risk. Right? So I'm not trying to find that, uh, oh, the price is $25.03. I'm trying to find out, well, my price, I know it's between $17 and $23, right? Or $28 or something like that. Um, so that preface, and the second preface is, is that you always have to understand the limits of your data. And that's, that's another point that I already made, but just to like really emphasize it, is that you have to understand the limits of, of the data you collected. If I collect 10 conversations with people and um, I'm just asking about things and we're out of coffee or something like that. I'm not going to go make a $10 million decision off of that. But I'm also probably not going to collect $100,000 worth of data when I'm looking at, you know, what should this new ad copy be for this Google search ad that we can just kind of test based on volume, you know, using A-B testing or multivariate testing. And so with those prefaces aside, the, the, the truest and direct answer to your question is you have to be asking in the right way. And more often than not, when I look at surveys, and I was just you know, commenting on, a, on one that was found publicly, um, the surveys are, are asking questions like, on a scale of one to 10, what would you, how important do you think this feature is? How important is this feature, this feature? Well, you're not forcing anyone to make a decision. You're just saying like, and if you ask someone who's not technically minded, they're just gonna go nine, 10, nine, 10, nine, 10, right? Because they're like, you, you're not forcing them into anything, right? Whereas if I ask them, out of these five features, what's the most important and what's the least important? All of a sudden, like I'm forcing them to make a decision and across a statistically significant group of people, 
I have mitigated some risk. Now, this is not the only data I'm going to look at to make a decision. I'm going to look at market data. I'm going to look at qualitative data. I'm going to look at a bunch of different things. And the same thing on the pricing side. You never can ask someone, hey, how much is this worth? Like human beings, like we're, our minds actually aren't made to even answer that question. The way we think about value and psychologists, economists have studied this for a long time is we know value relatively. So we know that this, you know, water bottle is worth less than this computer that I'm on because we purchased these in the past or we just relatively know we get more utility or more value out of the computer. Now, if you put me in the desert for three days without water, all of a sudden that value differential switches, right? So right. we can take advantage of asking range questions. You know, at what point is this way too expensive that you never consider purchasing it? At what point is this such a good deal you sign up today, right? And yes, there is a disconnect between that data and the actual like behavior. But what you tend to find is if you do your research properly and you de-bias and you understand as much as humanly possible, um, you end up getting in within a good range. Like, so we found there's, there's this basic methodology called Van Westendorp. Um, and there's some criticism of it, but it's, it's, it's again, could you, could you repeat the name of that? Uh, Van Westendorp. Um, if you just type anything like remotely close to that, it'll <laughs> pop up in Google. But it's, again, there are limits to it if you use the basic, you know, the basic formula for it. And it's, it's, it's those range questions. But if you do it just the basic form, you're going to be plus or minus 20, 25% if you do basic outlier analysis. So like plus or minus 20, 25%, that helps me understand am I a $10 product, $100 product, $500 product, $1,000 product. And you may think that's super simple. Of course, we're a $500 product. Well, I guarantee you that that decision was made in some random room based on, well, you know, we're kind of like this company, so we're going to put the price where they are. That's not a way to price. I'd rather have plus or minus 20% data that I can make some decisions on basis versus not. And to kind of round this out, um, cause I've been talking for a while. If you use better statistical models with the Van Westendorp questions, and these are the ones we use cause we've developed them. Um, we still use the questions because that was the best innovation of that model. Um, we can get to plus or minus about 5%. So it's, 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 again, it's, it's about how you ask and how you clean the data. Um, and I think it's a lot of folks, it's, oh, well, you know, they're never going to actually tell us. Well, yeah, if you ask them just point blank, they're never going to actually tell you. Um, but if you ask in the right manner and you look at the data properly, et cetera, you can get pretty close and that de-risks the decision. Um, all right. So just, uh, I'm going to say this for the podcast. I will take and, and find some resources on the Van Westendorf model and I'll get those and I'll put those in the show notes. And if Patrick, if you have just a link share to a book, so I've got it. Just share the book. The book's okay. got it. So just I'll share the book. I'll put I'll put a link to the book as well. Okay. Um, there you go. That's a, that, Perfect. It's a, a great segue to bring us into something that uh, that I've done some studying on. It's called price differentiation, and uh, uh, the price differentiation. You know, there's lots of examples. You know, if in the book, you know, I'm going to give a quick example for the audience because I got people all over the world, different levels of education, different specialties. Price differentiation, you, you, when you go into your local coffee shop and they show, hey, um, you know, university students get 20% off um, of, of, their, of their lattes, you know, it's under the guise of being something favorable and friendly and supportive of students, but I guarantee you it's actually a pricing model designed to generate more profit because students have less money and they have different uh, pricing thresholds and value points and different income levels. And it actually increases their profitability by doing price differentiation like that. Yeah. And yeah. And so, uh, you know, we think of price differentiation, you know, purely on a feature and benefit, you know, here's the free version, here's the basic version, here's the pro version, here's the enterprise version. We tend to think of it that way, but there's other ways to think of it as well. Um, have you done any, uh, have you done any, analysis on price differentiation in uh, B2B and subscription businesses? Yeah, so th this is um, price differentiation is super crucial. Um, and we, we sometimes write about this of fighting the mono price mindset. Um, and a lot of people think, uh, especially like people are creating mobile apps and things like that. It's like, well, we can only have one price. There's only so much, you know, uh, so much real estate on the screen. And I think that the thing you got to think about are two things. One, um, just to finish the point I was just making, um, it's not it's not a single move game pricing. It's a multi move game. So maybe I get that person in with the first price, you know, the the ten dollar a month price. But then I learn a ton about them. So the best mobile apps out there, even if they're mobile first in terms of monetization, they are able to learn about the user, and then they have like fifteen plans on the back end, 
that they're then offering based on usage and things like that, because all of your users are different. Um, the coffee shop example that you said, and this gets a little bit more true to your point, you have, you know, um, you know, seniors coming in there, you got uh, students coming in there, you got um, the regular person, you got business people, you got all kinds of different people. Now, it's hard to charge based on, and sometimes illegal, to charge based on certain traits of people, right? Um, right. We can give you a senior discount, but we can't charge, you know, men and women differently for the same thing. Um, although certain people have tried, I don't know if you ever heard of the pink tax, but um, did. Yeah. razors, women's women's razors, uh, you know, the pink ones are 20% priced higher, even though it's the same razor as, as the men's ones. And these are typically the like really cheap razors, but you know, the point still holds. And so what you want to do is you want to understand who your segments are and who your buyers are. So if that college or that uh, coffee shop's next to the college, well, they know they have regular, you know, people coming in, but they also know they have a student. And so that's a really good differentiator if you can. Other ways to do this are, you know, nonprofit discounts, education discounts. We see those all the time. But the other way to do it is figure out what is the packaging or what is the product that best suits that segment and then having different packages for those segments. So this is where you get good, better, best pricing, right? You get, um, okay, so small, small businesses who come in and use a product, they're going to get on this this plan and it has a little bit of less features Then there's this middle tier for like the core business and then there's enterprise plan, right? And that's how you kind of price discriminate and that sounds bad, but it's, it's just a descriptive word rather than a moral word, but that's how you kind of price discriminate because you end up offering the people who have different willingnesses to pay a slightly different version of the product. So, you know, at coffee shops, a really good price differentiation is that's why they offer pastries. Some people just want the coffee. Some people want the coffee and the pastry. Some people want the pastry. And they're all priced at different things, and you're boosting that average order value um, based on those segments. Now, I think that the purest form of price differentiation is something called the value metric. And this is not really applicable to more retail-oriented products um, and, and, you know, certain things where there isn't, like, an actual amount of usage. But a value metric is how you charge. So it could be per user, per hundred visits, per thousand what's-its or whatever's. Um, and now we can you know, very much uh, measure these types of things. But the reason it's a really good pure form of price differentiation is um, everyone is going to use the product a little differently. Some people are gonna have three users, some people are gonna have six users, some people are gonna have 6,000 users, right? And you don't want them paying the same amount of money assuming the value is and the number of users that are in the product. And so that allows you to make sure you're not charging you know, Johnny or Jane's startup the same thing that you're charging, um, you know, the giant enterprise corporation like Disney or something like that. Right. Excellent. All right. So, so, you know, this, and uh, we're, we're actually probably, we're, we're covering probably seven podcasts worth of content in little snippets all the way through here, but I'm going to, I'm going to drive on to the next topic because I want to introduce it as well because everybody wants to take and maximize revenue. Right. And what, and the reason you, make these adjustments, the reason you focus on these things, the aspects, and the reason you work on your levers for growth is, you know, we, we say, I want to improve my ARPU, or I want to improve my MMR, and I want to improve my LTV. And I, and th but those are just abstract concepts. In reality, mm -hmm. you know, we want strong, healthy, growing business that, yep. uh, that's, go that's going to meet our end game. And if, if my end game is to maximize it so that my business is leveraged up to sell it at some point, great. If I just want to be able to survive the next uh, financial or, or, or heaven help us, you know, pandemic crisis, and I want to have enough margin in there to survive all that and be healthy, you know, as a business, then, that, then that's great too. We have all these things. So everyone's trying to optimize and, and to try and tweak the levers to make a few extra bucks. But there's something I wanted to touch on as well. And I'm, I'm going to start by telling a quick, a quick kind of a classic econ example. Sure. Um, there was, uh, uh, you know, back uh, uh, several years ago, uh, American Airlines was the only airline serving a certain Pennsylvania airport. I don't remember if it was Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. I don't remember which one it was. But they, they had sure. almost a lock on this, mar on this airport, right? And, because, and they, they just they optimized the revenue, right, uh, to, to maximize profit from the airport. Right. They, mm -hmm. they just they, they would just, you know, it was it was three hundred dollars to get out of the airport. It just was. And yeah. then uh, and, and it was just kind of accepted. And that's just the way it was. It was more expensive than other flights of similar lengths in other markets, you know, yeah. but because they because they'd optimized the pricing for that for that particular airport. You know, they knew they could charge this. They had the seats. Well, then Southwest Airlines came in and disrupted the market and they came in with a seventy nine dollar fare. And uh, so, so the price overnight, going the going rate for flights that you know uh, out of this airport dropped from two hundred seventy nine dollars 
to $79. And, they, and that, huh. that was just Southwest model. And um, American Airlines immediately responded and adjusted their pricing to match. But now the entire city was very mad at them because what it gave them is the perception was that you've been ripping us off for, for X number of years. You always could have made this price. You're still making this price now. And uh, American almost lost control of the entire market and lost all the business to Southwest coming in because Southwest just followed their normal pricing distance based pricing model. And so the customer, so, uh, is is that an example? I mean, I, I use that as an example sometimes of what I call over optimization. You know, you are you're so focused on maximizing your profit per flight or your profit per customer that you lose sight of some broader, ch bigger changes, whether it's competitive changes or technological changes. And I'm gonna give you one more example too to put in your brain. Now I want to let you respond. The next one is my favorite punching bag for the last several years has been Gillette because they screwed so many things up, so many things they did wrong. That, that they're just kind of helpless and, and, and it's, it's easy to pick on. But one of the things they did is they, they had spent 20 years focusing on profit maximization and, mm. you know, seven blades and six blades plus a light. And then, and then they had, you know, the foaming strip and they had the aloe thing. And, and now you have a razor blade that costs 20 bucks. And, and, and they have all this. So they have all these tiers, all the positionings and packaging and pricings that you and I, Patrick, that you and I could ever want Gillette yeah. had in their lineup right? And their entire world was being shaken beneath them because of cultural and technical disruption. They never saw it. And the company lost $7 billion in market capitalization in one year. All right. Yeah. Because they were, they were focused on positioning, packaging, and pricing. Right, now I have two examples there for you from the, from Sally say the, the real world. How does that, yeah. that does that apply? Is, is there anything there of value for B2B and subscription marketers? Yeah, I think the big thing that I, in those examples and in, in, in what you described, is I think that you you have you have three kind of main types of pricing, and then there's plenty of things underneath there. You have like cost plus, which is you know kind of how it sounds, and you know when you have, um, I don't think it's a good pricing model because your costs and your value are not necessarily equated. Right, you know, there are products that are cost too much, and their value is just lower than their cost. Um, and there's plenty of products, especially in the world of software, where the the value is so much higher than the marginal cost of each additional user. Um, competitive based pricing, that's you know, when you obviously take into account your competitors. I think the problem there is you you end up um, you know essentially you end up essentially saying, hey, we're selling the exact same thing to the exact same type of customer. And in some cases, it's pretty close. And, you know, a flight on Southwest versus a flight on American Airlines, like depending on your preferences. But if we really looked at those objectively, pretty close together, right? Like one has some different preferences, but not not too different. Um, and the problem, though, is that most companies, that's that's not the case. And then there's value-based pricing, which is what we've been talking about, which is you know understanding and focusing on your customer and understanding your segments and understanding where they value, where they don't value, and then ultimately like willingness to pay and, and elasticity and things like that. So when you have these three types of pricing, when I look at those two examples, I go, they're focusing on the customer, but they're not necessarily taking into consideration some of the other pieces that go into this puzzle. And those are things like competitors in this case. If I was American Airlines and I saw what Southwest was doing, you are now free to move about the country. Um, or that Southwest could come into this market, I would start softening the rates as quickly as humanly possible. And that's not always going to be possible, but I would look at this and I would start to, you know, start to give some deals or start to, you know, basically come down on those prices. Um, I think that you can go further in kind of what you're alluding to and let your, you know, kind of monopolistic power damage consumers. Um, in, in a much more, you know, smaller version of that. But I think if you're focusing on your customer, what you'll start to realize is there are going to be some features and some functionality that you're just going to do for retention and customer satisfaction. Um, it's really hard to get a product, you know, those Gillette razors and stuff like that. If you're adding those things in, and yes, they're better for margin, but they're not moving customer satisfaction, or in some cases, they're moving it down. Because it's like, well, it's getting so expensive, I have a rocket ship that I'm trying to shave with, essentially all of a sudden that's a really good signal. So what I would say is in, in the purest form of view, like, no, like that doesn't affect it because you would need, you would probably, or you should be taking 
into consideration these other pieces. Like we give away a free product that's better than the paid competition out there, like objectively and also subjectively, but like objectively it's better in terms of accuracy and all these other things. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. We're not trying to squeeze because we know that for the long term, that's going to be better for NPS, our CAC, all these different things, right? So I don't know. I think it's, it, it, it's, it comes down to the operator. And, the, and if you focus on the customer and you're taking the customer in mind, you're probably going to make some mistakes, as you described, um, because, you know, you, you, you will be blindsided by something. But most often than not, it's not going to be something that's catastrophic. And I don't know enough about Gillette, but I would argue that Gillette did not take seriously the rise of beards. And I know that sounds funny, but I, I really don't think they did. Um, and I also don't think that they took into consideration some of the challengers in the market quickly enough, uh, like Dollar Shave Club and some of these others, because um, they were just worried about, you know, Schick and some of the other brands rather than like the, the, the new upstarts, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to, I'll, I'll just kind of, I'll, I'll reframe what, what you just said a different way with, with the American example. You know, if you know, American was charging a lot, if they'd, if they'd, you know, been aware of the competition, if they, you know, like you said, soften their model a little bit, and then before market entry, if they'd really focused on delivering a more valuable product or a more satisfying product, it might have softened the blow for them a little bit because customers would have perceived a, uh, would have perceived more value, more leg room, a free beverage, you know, uh, premium premium boarding passes, things of that nature. So anyway, something to make that to make them at least look like they were at least trying to sell something that was a uh, better off than Southwest's uh, cattle call. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. You know, uh, so I want to jump, you know, because uh, I, I want to be very respectful of your time. We have, we have a few minutes left. And sure. you've, done some, you've done some content over the last couple of months about COVID. And, and it was real, one of the things that was really interesting to me because, uh, um, you know, you, you posted some charts online that showed a tremendous uptick in customer acquisitions, you know, during, during the, the COVID crisis. But concomitant with that, we had uh, some, some uh, lots of churn. And um, yeah. was, it, was this just people, and, and, you, and so if I remember correctly, your editorial, your narrative at the time was, there's people just not focusing on proper customer retention, or was it a factor of experimentation? What can you tell us on, the, on B2B subscription-based models and technology? What it, what's your current state of knowledge and learning on the impact of the COVID crisis? Yeah, so for B2B specifically, um, actually fared pretty well. Um, so, you know, relative to D2C or consumer businesses, I could talk about that in a second, but B2B, basically what ended up happening is, um, you know, everyone was thrown for a loop, the world's ending or everything's going to be okay, you know, and whenever you have really smart people that far apart on something, um, and, and there are groups of people, normally it's an indication that no one actually knows what's going on. You know, it's not an indication that any, any of them are right. Um, and so I think that what we did is we put together, you know, just based on the data we're sitting on, um, this index that could actually track um, subscription companies' growth, their new revenue, their lost revenue, and then we could segment it by vertical if it was a B2B company or a consumer company or an app or something like that. And what we found with B2B is that B2B never contracted. There was no contraction. It took a hit in the fact that it flat. It went flat for a few weeks, um, basically meaning um, you know there, there was some flattening. And where that flattening came from was um, essentially people just on their cancellations and their churn. So a lot of businesses, all of a sudden, they they realized, oh, I have to go through the spreadsheet and look at every single expense and just get rid of the things that maybe I wasn't paying attention to, um, and things like that. But new revenue stayed consistent. And then what was kind of interesting is that new revenue. Uh, actually accelerated. So it got more. So there's more acceleration in terms of new revenue. And what that basically caused was this, this world where a lot of B2B businesses, unless they had directly to do with something having to do with going outside or something that was obviously hit by COVID, uh, they actually were doing really well. Really well. Um, it was a different story in the world of consumer subscriptions where basically consumer subscriptions, I think something like 10x in terms of growth overall. Uh, very quickly, because there's a lot of people in the subscription e-commerce space or a lot of consumers who they were like, oh, I can't, you know, go out to eat. So maybe I'm going to order, you know, Blue Apron or I can't, I don't want to get my toilet paper at the store. So I'm going to get subscription toilet paper, which exists. Um, it's you, need, you, need, crap. You, yeah, you need speedy delivery for that. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so I like that. Um, but long story short, um, it was amazing and new revenue went skyrocketed, but unfortunately we've started to see actual contraction on some of that growth uh, because what's happened is those first couple months that people were subscribing were great. And then all of a sudden there's a lot of churn that's happening. So my big message to the world of D2C and really it's to B2B as well is that, you know, don't lose the opportunity of these new customers coming in by not fixing the bottom of your funnel or their, your post funnel, I should say, um, which, you know, I think a lot of D2C brands, they, you know, they didn't, I think it's going to net out positively, but it was a little scary there for a little while because a lot of those, those, the churn was, you know, hitting them pretty hard. What's the, what's the, uh, so, so now we're talking to this, you've covered a lot of ground and, you know, but you kind of live in this space. What's, if somebody wants to take, uh, if you're a startup and what's the, and you don't, you don't have any data, you're getting customers. Yeah. You, you, you got, you got like, you got six customers. One of them is your mom, right? So you're, uh, what's, what, where do you, how, what's your advice for these guys? Is it just, is it just research at some point here or where do you start to set your pricing? Yeah, I think the, the first thing, um, in the early days, there's two things you want to focus on. Um, what's your value metric? I think if you get mostly everything else wrong, but you are, let's say, not catastrophic, it's average or not great, um, but you get your value metric right, it can save you a lot. Because what happens with a value metric, I didn't really get into this, is that expansion revenue is baked directly into how you make money. So basically, they start using more of the value metric, or they get more of the value if it's not quite a usage metric. And the, the, the expansion revenue takes place. And then churn is less because you might see more contraction, but there's not as much churn because um, those folks are, are, you know, they're going to pay less for the usage that they're actually getting. So that's a big thing if you're a B2B company. If you're in D2C, it's a little bit tougher. Um, but the other thing is, is that focusing on who is your beachhead segment or beachhead customer. And it's not going to be a perfect analysis when you're just starting out because you don't have a ton of data. But I would do some research and it could be as simple as just have 10 calls with prospective customers per week or your current customers per week, just learning about them. You'd be amazed at how many times you learn just from interviews and then maybe run some surveys or something like that. And there's plenty of resources that I can share and there's plenty of resources online on how to do this type of stuff. But I think it's like, you have to figure out who are we in terms of who we're selling to? Are we that $10 product? Are we that $10,000 product? Are we selling to, um, you know, soccer moms and dads? Are we selling to, um, you know, directors of sales or VPs of sales, because there's a little bit of a difference there, right? You have to figure out who that beachhead is. I, I don't know if finding a picture-perfect price point is really the biggest thing to figure out. Um, I think you need to figure that out, you know, in the beginning, just because, like, you have to figure out, are you that $10,000, $100,000 product, where are you? But don't worry about the little nickels and dimes that much early on. Focus on, like, who you're going to be targeting, because if you think about it, that's who you're driving to, that point of conversion, that's who you're trying to convert, and that's ultimately how you're going to, like, who you're going to try to retain. Is there some sort of a magic, uh, you know, uh, under, uh, say, let's say that you're, you've decided that your market is, that your product is a hundred dollar product. Just a random, random example. Do you say, okay, we're going to start as a 75 to make sure that we're not overshooting and then work our way up or you're, you're, you're smiling. So that's a common question. Yeah. Everyone wants an easy path. Uh, I know. So There's no, yeah, yeah, yeah. there are some heuristics. I think that, um, to, to give you some, so, so it's a little bit of a long-winded, so I'll try to be quick, but um, you, you essentially have some folks who, um, if you're under, like, if, like, so I can tell you this, there's, an Am there's a thing called the Amex effect. So I, I can tell you that a $100, anything between $100 and $200, like any price point, it should be $100, $150, or $200. Um, and the reason for this is that if you're kind of at like $110, um, the problem is, is that you're actually alienating a bunch of folks because that extra $10, um, it's, it's not something where they're like, they're, they're going to quickly swipe a credit card. They're overthinking it. Um, and if you're at 130, those people are willing to pay 150. Like we've just seen this time and time and time again, no matter the product we look at. Now, when you get below hundred dollars and then when you get above $200, there are a couple of different shelves, but it gets a little murky that you should actually test or do some research. When you get below hundred dollars, there's some similar effects. Um, typically if you're over 75, you should just be a hundred, um, cause people are willing to pay at that particular price point. Um, there are some exceptions and then, you know, typically between 50 and 75, it's actually all over the place. You got to do some research there. 
And then between 35 and 50, it's very similar. And then um, there's some other cliffs below that. But yeah, there's, there's not really like a, a picture perfect you know, answer. I think a bigger decision is, hey, we did a couple of interviews or we did some things. Do we want to try to go high and then come down? Or do we want to start low and then go up? And I think that I often am a big proponent of starting high and high might be relative. It might be $100 when maybe you end up being 50 because you want to go after the people who actually really care because you want to learn as much as humanly possible from them. When you go too low, you get a lot of noise. You get a lot of people who are just like, oh, I'll just swipe the credit card. I'll just sign up or whatever it ends up happening. And then it's also really hard to like ratchet up those prices over time, both for new customers and, um, you know, and existing customers because you just won't have the confidence because you're like, well, I have these people coming in, even though it might be false positives. And then you're just too scared to, to raise that price over time. So it's more about the philosophy, I think, than, than anything. I, 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 you were actually, actually, that was a very helpful response. And there's some several real world examples that popped to mind that there's some businesses that uh, their whole model is based upon you not using the product that they're so that, that they're so cheap that you just forget yeah. about them and let it run, you know? Uh, so yeah. there, there's that too. Um, all right. I, I, we are, we are at our full hour. Uh, all right. So to find, first of all, you've, uh, you have a cool Twitter handle. It's Patricus like Spartacus. But Patricus, am I yeah. saying that correctly? Right. It's uh, Patricus, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S. So okay, yeah, Patticus. like Spartacus without the R. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Patricus, and then uh, and that's and that's and that's how I found you, and you posting regularly up there, and I think and that's a good way. What what other digits? How other? I'll put some links in the in the show notes. Yeah. But how do you want people to get a hold of you? Yeah, just send me an email, uh, Patrick at profwell.com. Um, I respond to everybody. It may take a little while, um, but even if in, in you know, it doesn't have to be a sales inquiry or anything like that. Um, if you have a question on pricing, we probably have written something on it. Um, so don't be afraid to hit us up. We're more than happy to, uh, to, to shut, shut down or shorten your path of learning by just sending you the article rather than you having to search around and, and try to find stuff. You know what, Patrick, you've been very helpful. You've been very generous with your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And um, I, I hope, you know, I'm, I, think we'll, I think we'll talk again in the future about something else interesting that pops up, but hopefully it'll just be about like normal business as opposed to doing crazy 2020 business. There you go. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. We'll see you, Jeff. Yep. Thank you, sir. Have a great one. Bye for now. Bye now. Yo, this is Nigel again, as promised, and there are links in the episode notes to help you dig on in. Yo, Patrick is quite the pro, and he'll make himself available to our listeners, and Jeff is always happy to answer any question he can. You know, and this is pretty cool. Before Jeff and Patrick started talking about subscription pricing models, they were just chatting, you know, online about the diminishing value of big cities. And you know how Jeff feels about that. But, you know, Jeff and Ellen just moved out to Puerto Rico and Patrick moved his company all the way to Salt Lake City from Boston because it makes a lot of sense to do things like that right now. You know, anyway, you know, I broke all of this off into some bonus content video that you can see with a link below in the show notes. So have at it. Jeff would want me to remind you to remember to like, follow, and subscribe to The Jeff Effect and send it to someone you know who might be selling technology products and services online. You know, send them that link to this episode because, you know, they might get some good out of it for all the work. Yeah, that's it for now. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next time. Welcome to The Jeff Effect. Jeff Effect.